Thank you, Rebecca. Um, she underestimates the organization that uh, she works with here in Los Angeles in the Opera, the Opera League. It is a phenomenal group of folks who really, in many ways, are the backbone of the Los Angeles Opera. They're unheralded and they're unthanked, and I want to thank them for all of the work they do. They know the artists, they know the administrators, and many of them know you, and you're here because of them. And the work that they have done with Los Angeles Opera for the past 30 years is absolutely phenomenal, and they're to be thanked. And you would be lucky to become a member of their organization and get the close affiliation with this organization. So congratulations to the Los Angeles Opera League. So how does one go about Puccini's La Boheme and thinking about it? It's an opera that is so much part of the vernacular of the art form that probably everyone here this evening has seen it at least a half a dozen times. You know all of the arias, you know all of the characters, there are points in the opera that you absolutely love. I would imagine we could get a chorus up here right now to sing each of the arias and scenes and sound pretty decent at it. So how does one go about approaching this work when you've seen it so many times and it's such a part of the fabric of what we all love about opera? Well, you come, you come to it for the first time. You don't know what's going to happen to these characters as they unfold. You don't know why Puccini was attracted to the work or what, uh, what gave him the motivation and how he went about working with his librettists and his publisher to develop the work and how it saw its first performance uh, in, in Turin in 1896. Don't think about the sadness that comes at the end. Think about the jollity. The librettists thought it was a comic opera. And in some ways, it's a comic opera to the extent that Mozart's Don Giovanni and La Nozze de Figaro are drama jocosas, which are essentially comic dramas. In La Boheme, Puccini brings great comedy to many of the scenes before bringing great emotion and, to a certain extent, tragedy. But the question, does Mimi's death at the end of the opera, and I've given it away, is that truly tragic or is it representation of what Puccini is trying to capture in this work? Now, he and his librettists work with a French author, or at least the French opera Henri Mouger, who uh, wrote a story, Scenes of Bohemians, in the mid-19th mid century, about 1850, more or less. And he wrote, did Mouget, about the stories of characters in his own life. These were young people. In a certain sense, they were anti-establishment. They were young. They were vital. They were vibrant. And in Mouget's work, actually, Rodolfo is not the clean-cut, uh, starving poet that we know him to be, but he's overweight. He wears scruffy clothes and has a long, multicolored beard. That's in Mouget's work. But as Puccini takes the characters, he gives them a life of his own. And so they resemble the character in Mouget's work, but more or less they represent the spirit of the work. And the spirit of the work is the moment in time when we were all young. It's not philosophical. It's not deep. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it's very facile. It's ephemera. And Puccini is capturing that ephemeral moment of our youth and the youth of these characters in his opera. Their lives, they become middle-aged. Rodolfo and Marcello become a banker and a lawyer. I mean, come on, really? Is this, uh, is this what we look, have to look forward to? But at this point in their lives, they're painters and they're poets and they're lovers. 
And it's that moment in all of our lives where we have that exuberance and it lasts for such a short time. And Puccini has captured that in his characters. And in a sense, the death of Mimi is the understanding, and this is where it is philosophical or existential, where this part of our lives all expire. But Puccini captures it with such great fun and such great musical joy. Now, since you're here early, and Rebecca has allowed me to start a little bit early, I'm going to play some musical excerpts that would, uh, would drive most folks away. Um, these were recorded in the early 20th century. These are those old scratchy records that when you listen to old opera singers, you kind of want to say, is that what it is, and run out? Well, Puccini's first Mimi uh, was a soprano, and he was actually fairly happy with her. She sang his first Manon Lescaut in, uh, in 1893. She was also the first Mimi in, at the Teatro Reggio in Turin in 1896, the performance conducted by Arturo Toscanini. Here is a recording from 1902 of that very soprano, the first Mimi, who Puccini said had a good voice. Soprano Cesira Ferrani, recorded in 1902, a portion of Mimi's aria, See Mi Chiamano Mimi, Yes, They Call Mimi, But My Name Is uh, Maria. Uh, I make artificial flowers and look forward to spring and the warmth that it brings. Another recording, and this again, because you're here early, is Enrico Caruso. Now, Enrico Caruso, I asked my daughter today, who's 21 years old and studies music at USC's Thornton School of Music, and she's a modest soprano. I asked her if she knew who Enrico Caruso was, her father, the opera guy, and she said she didn't know the name. <laughs> That's good. That means there's some distance between me and my daughter's musical uh, training. This is a good thing. But Enrico Caruso did not sing the first Rodolfo. It was another tenor who was likely good. But Caruso wanted to sing Puccini's, wanted to sing in Puccini's operas. But Puccini didn't know him. And Enrico Caruso was a bit rough around the edges as a young tenor. Well, he showed up at Puccini's house one day, knocked on the door, and said, I want to talk to the maestro. And uh, Puccini's uh, doorman said, go away. But he was insistent. And the doorman told Puccini that there's this tenor outside who wants to talk to him. And so Puccini went to the balcony and looked out and said, what do you want? And Caruso sang, Que gelida manina, you know, I am a poet. 
And Puccini was absolutely charmed, sat down with Caruso, and as you well know, had a long, fruitful relationship with Enrico Caruso and Puccini. In fact, uh, Caruso sang the first Dick Johnson in La Fanchula del West at the Metropolitan Opera in 1910, among others. Here is Enrico Caruso from 1904, singing a portion of Que Gelida Manina. It's only a minute and a half. Caruso. So just to put it in some historical perspective, Puccini's plot, his music, as well as his plot, is, are quick-paced. Scenes change as quickly, emotions change quickly, again representing the youth of the characters and what Puccini is trying to create. His score is bright and brilliant sketches, very much in the theme of the work of Mouget. Keep in mind, though, that there are musical themes that we hear in Puccini, similar to the arias that we just heard, Kejelina Manina, Rodolfo's aria, and Mimi's Si Mi Chiamano Mimi. In some ways, these become musical fingerprints, but they don't have the psychological impact and depth of the leitmotifs found in Wagner. They're not meant to recall sort of the deep symbolism of what's taking place. The symbolism in this opera is about youth and about love and about its short-lived. But we, look at, we need to come to Puccini looking at where he was or where music was at the time that this opera was composed. What was yet to be composed in 1896, Richard Strauss's seminal work, Salome and Electra, Stravinsky's ballet's Firebird and the Rite of Spring, any music comprising Arnold Schoenberg's 12-tone music, those had not yet been brought forward, so Puccini was not writing in a style that would some way reflect what took place just a few years later in the early, 21st, early 20th century. Instead, what was the landscape was Wagner's Tristan und Parsifal, uh, Claude Debussy's had just written Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, and Richard Strauss, though not his operas, had written more 
the conventional tone poems in Don Juan and Death and Transfiguration. So when we listen to the music of Puccini here, it's not by way of saying, gee, Richard Strauss did something different, or uh, Arnold Schoenberg did something different, or Stravinsky took music in a different direction. He was coming from the tradition of Verdi, and Rossini, and Donizetti, and Bellini, and to a certain extent, his colleagues, Leon Cavallo and Mascagni, who had this sense of Italian romantic bel canto opera. And what Puccini does is to take that and change it to these very quick, bright scenes. And it's done not only in terms of the text or the libretto, but in terms of the brightness of the score and the use of different instrumentations. A lot of percussion, a lot of, a lot of horns and wind section, and instruments such as unusual instruments, strings instruments, the harp often will, will come in and, and create a musical scene. So you listen for that in Puccini, recognizing that he works very quickly in going from one musical theme, one musical idea, one emotion to another, rather than the long extended scenes, musical scenes that you find in Wagner and to many degrees in the music of Verdi. So what happened? Where, what, what was the first performance like and what, what was the, the genesis of the opera? Puccini usually works, one, works on one opera for about three years, and while he's finishing that opera, he's looking for the text and the, score and, the, and the ideas for the next opera. So his first successful opera was his third opera, Manon Lescaut, and while he was finishing that, the idea came to him of potentially working on La Boheme. Now it is said that Leon Cavallo, who we know from Pagliacci, um, was working on a libretto and presumably had offered that libretto to Puccini. There's some historical question of that. But it came to light that Leon Cavallo was working on a La Boheme at the same time as Puccini was working on a La Boheme. And each of these composers worked with different publishers. So Puccini worked with Ricordi and Leon Cavallo worked with Sonzogno. So while Puccini was finishing his Manon Lesco, it was thought that he would take on the opera La Boheme, or take on the story of La Boheme. So he worked with two librettists, Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. Now I say these names, and they probably don't have the resonance to you, but these were very fine writers and poets in their own day. And in many ways, the librettist is as important to an opera and its genesis and its completion as the music. And in this particular case, both Giuseppe Giacosa and Luigi Illica had a very tough time with Puccini. In fact, they'd said they'd never work with him again. Puccini was constantly changing the story. The fourth act was written four times. Uh, the, the librettos, they would sit down and Puccini would cross out lines and he had a musical idea in his mind and he would write just gibberish and send it back to the, to the librettist and say, here is the music I want to use and here are some words you figure out how to make the story. This drove these folks mad. And they said they'd never work with Puccini again. And yet, notwithstanding that, the success of La Boheme was somewhat modest, but Ricordi, the uh, publisher convinced them to work with Puccini again and to great success in Madama Butterfly and Tosca. And we remember Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa because of their great work with Puccini, not in their great work in and of themselves. So it took three years of, uh, of putting the work together and the first performance was conducted by a 29-year-old Arturo Toscanini, 29 years old. 
and he was tough then. Puccini thought he was amazing and a genius. The, the rehearsals took six hours, often going past midnight, which was tough in those days. He was musically scrupulous, so much so that the stagehands walked around in their stocking feet so as not to disturb anything and thus uh, disturb the, the conductor. And yet Puccini was likewise meticulous. He wanted to make sure that each movement, each thought, every idea was in a perfect place in the way he envisioned the work. In some ways, he's very much like the film director of today, but not only is he the film director, he would be the cinematographer and he would be the editor and Toscanini would just be there holding the stick. Uh, but that is how it went off in February of 1896, three years to the date after Manon Moscow. The critics were somewhat uh, mixed in terms of, the, of their reviews, but the audience was not. All 23 performances were absolutely sold out, and to the extent that Leon Cavallo's opera, the same name, La Boheme, appeared a year later and had some critical notices, had some positive notices, it is La Boheme, obviously, that has stayed with us for the past hundred plus years. So the story, as you well know, takes place in the mid-19th century in the Latin Quarter of Paris, and we, the opera opens in the, the garret, which is a cheap apartment of Rodolfo, the poet, and Marcello, the, the painter. Uh, they're bemoaning the fact that it's cold, they don't have anything to eat. So rather than burn a canvas, one of Marcello's canvases that might emit fumes of, uh, of, of paint burning, they decide to burn one of, um, one of Rodolfo's latest uh, manuscripts. So they start a fire, and the fires uh, die down. And as they say, Marcello says, down with the author, he's not quite good. But what we're going to hear this evening are a number of the, of the, of the scenes where it's not just the arias, but it's the characters interacting, giving a sense of the flavor for Puccini's quick sense of, of musical phrase and his ability to convey the emotion of the characters. Here is a scene from the first act with Marcello and Rodolfo.
So we hear the repeated themes of the Bohemians uh, that we will hear throughout the opera. And when we hear this, this sense of exuberance in these themes, we know that Puccini is referring lightheartedly to the, um, to the life of the Bohemians. Well, as you well know in the story, um, Marcello and Rodolfo at their, let's say, direst moment uh, are joined by Chonard, who comes in with with money that he's earned from being a music teacher for three days, and he comes in with food and wine and firewood and brings a certain sense of life that wasn't otherwise being created. He says that he's been given a job. He had a job as a musician by an eccentric Englishman, and he was to play music until the parrot died. Well, after three days, Chenard took matters into his own hands and the parrot died, Chonard was paid, and he brings in all of these munitions on, uh, on the evening that they're joined. But he does say it's Christmas Eve, and it does take place on Christmas Eve, and you don't stay in a, in a humble garret in the left bank of Paris on Christmas Eve, you go out. So just as they're getting ready to go out, there's a knock at the door, and it's their landlord who is downstairs and has heard the commotion and has decided that he's going to come up and ask for the unpaid rent. Well, this is an, an interesting character because some folks feel that when you have an older, responsible adult in the opera, such as uh, of youth, that oftentimes it's a representation of the composer. But I don't think that Benoit, the landlord seeking rent, is, the, is a representation of the composer. But in order to trick the landlord, they get him a bit tipsy with wine, ply him with wine, and then Marcello asks him uh, to tell about himself and if he's ever had any, you know, flaming love affairs to which Benoit then begins to, to uh, recount for the Bohemians uh, a love affair, an extramarital love affair that he has with great detail. Well now Marcello and the Bohemians become absolutely outraged and Benoit who's a bit tipsy and, uh, and no, no worse for the wear uh, is asked to leave uh, and is, is essentially kicked out of their garret. <laughs> So they're ready to go. Uh, Rodolfo says he's got to stay behind and finish off writing an article. So they leave him for the moment. And as he, he is trying to finish his article, his mind wanders off a bit. And then there's a timid knock at the door. And this is where Puccini becomes just the magician that we all know him to be. 
Uh, he says, who's there? And she says, excuse me. He opens, he says, it's a woman. He opens the door and it's Mimi. And she says that her candle has gone out. This is metaphorical to a certain extent. He's going to light her candle. Um, she, he invites her in. Uh, Mimi, we get the first inclination of her illness. She coughs and faints. And when she faints, she drops her house key. He lights her candle. She goes to leave the can. She recognizes that she doesn't have her key and the candle goes out again. To which we then have Rodolfo holding a candle. And some believe that Puccini didn't indicate that Rodolfo surreptitiously blows his candle out so it's dark, that it goes out naturally. But in any event, they're groping around on the floor for Mimi's key. Rodolfo finds it, and you hear a bit of a gasp. She senses it and asks, did you find it? And he said, no. So they continue to grope around, and their hands meet. And Rodolfo takes her hand, and it's cold. And he sings the aria, Che gelida manina, your tiny hand is so cold. Or as some say, your tiny mitt is frostbit. <laughs> he then tells her about himself, that while he is poor, he is a king with, rich, with riches, of, riches of poetry. How does he live? He lives. And he looks forward to the future. And this is something that he has great hope for. Mimi then takes the occasion to talk about herself, to which Puccini then has her sing, sing her delicate aria, Mi chiamano Mimi, I am Mimi. And as we indicated, I am called Mimi. My name is Maria. My name is Lucia. And, uh, and I make flowers. And I live alone. And I have a humble life. I look forward to the spring and the warmth that the sun brings. And we have these two lovers then are these two young people who are in one another's presence, and we don't know quite yet what's going to happen. And then we hear the, we hear the young men outside calling up to Rodolfo. Come, Rodolfo, let's go. Come on, let's go. And Rodolfo says, well, uh, I'm not here quite alone. To which Marcello then says that Rodolfo has found his poem. And then Rodolfo sings really what is one of the most exquisite lines of opera, beginning the duet, O oh, sweet face, bathe in the soft moonlight. I see in you the dream I've dreamed forever. And this is where in most productions, you have Mimi's face glowing with the moonlight. One of the exquisite moments of La Boheme, a bit of the duet, O oh, suave fanchula.
Claude Debussy said, La Boheme accurately captures the feel and spirit of mid-19th century Paris. That's Claude Debussy. And going back to the librettist, Giacosa again. Now, Giacosa was a friend of Verdi and Boito, and at the same time, uh, Verdi's opera Falstaff was making the rounds, as it were, in, in opera houses. And again, Verdi started writing operas in the mid-19th century, so we have uh, Verdi ending his career, Puccini starting him, but Giacosa was friends with Verdi and Puccini, and he felt, Giacosa felt that the characters were too young and that he could not capture the bright and frivolous festiveness that is the essence of the creations of the young. The bright and frivolous festiveness. Puccini certainly captures that. That, uh, that spirit in the second act. Sorry. The scene with Parpignol from the second act, where the children, Parpignol is the toy seller, the toy vendor, and the children are all excited. It's Christmas Eve, it's the Cafe Momos, and great shenanigans take place in this act. Uh, there are the youngsters, there's Parpignol, there's a great crowd, uh, and if you compare this to really the crowd scenes in either Mascagni's uh, Cavalleria Rusticana or in Leon Cavallo's Pagliacci, you can see how Puccini more deft, in a sense, more deftly um, brings in different, the individual characters who are relating to one another. You have the chorus in the background and you have great, um, really exuberant orchestration to create the magical scene of the, of the winter night in Paris. And yet, layered within all of this is the character Musetta who shows up. And we know that Musetta is a, um, a larger-than-life woman, generally wearing a large, bright red dress, uh, who's coming in on the arms of an old gentleman, Alcindoro. Um, she happens to see Marcello, and Marcello is a past, a recently passed flame of hers, and she gets excited to see him, and she wants to, well, let's just say hook up again, as they say. Marcello resisting it because he's burned at been burned at least once by Musetta, but it's hard to resist her. And Puccini, in all of the exuberance, the, the, the young, nascent love affair of Mimi and Rodolfo, he shows in many ways the next step of a love affair, which is with these young people, it's with that crazy, insane sort of jealousy and absolute hormonal desire, and he captures that with Musetta and Marcello. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Marcello calls her sirena, which is a siren, which she certainly has been in that particular scene. Musetta falling into Marcello's hands. Usually the audience breaks out in great, uh, great applause when that occurs, and it's one of the highlights of, the, of, of really the opera. Puccini the man, he started a club with his pals, his local club. Uh, he found an old shack and they fixed it up and they called it the La Boheme Club. And uh, Puccini was the president, so all his friends came, they played cards, they drank, they smoked. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of music, but this was, uh, was something that they did. He was a great hunter, and while composing La Boheme, one day he went out on, on the lake with his friends, and they went across the lake, and Puccini was standing up in his boat, and they, he was arrested. He was arrested for trespassing and for not having a registered firearm. Well, so when it came to the trial, Puccini's uh, lawyer, didn't say that he was out hunting. In fact, they said he was looking for a summer rental and that the weapon that he had was used to clear the weeds in the, in the, in the river so that they could see more clearly what the property looked like. And oh, by the way, their bags weren't filled with anything. And to the extent that Puccini stood up and said, right, my bag didn't have anything in it. I'm a great shot. And if I was actually poaching something, I'd have something in my bag. Not guilty. Puccini dedicated La Boheme to the woman, the Marchesa, who owned the estate uh, that he was supposedly trespassing on. The third act, we come to really what is considered by many um, the most beautiful of Puccini's act, and certainly one that is the most heartfelt. In the third act, it's in February. Rodolfo and Mimi have broken up, in a sense. Rodolfo is very jealous, and on this cold February morning, Rodolfo is in a tavern where Marcello and Musetta work, and Mimi comes to the gates, uh, gates of Paris, she comes to the tavern, and she asks if Marcello's there. So someone goes in, and Marcello comes out and says, Mimi, what are you doing here? And he, he said, is Rodolfo there? And he says, yes, come in. She said, no, I'm not going to go in. And then Mimi bears her heart to Marcello saying that Rodolfo is insanely jealous and it's been difficult for her to live with him. Leonard Bernstein said that the third act of Puccini's La Boheme is what music does to expand mere drama into opera. 
The duets and the trios that Puccini writes in the third act are as exquisite music and dramatic as any opera composer at any time wrote. We're going to hear the, do a portion of the duet between Marcello and Mimi, and hear the emotion in Mimi, and hear how Puccini allows Marcello to support and be sympathetic, but you really don't even need to know the words to recognize what Mimi is feeling and how she's expressing it to Marcello. So I'm using this for the first time, so I apologize. Tibaldi and Ettore Bastianini. So Rodolfo is about to come outside and Marcello suggests that Mimi hide herself. So Mimi hides behind a tree, curious as to what Rodolfo is going to say and somewhat anxious. 
Now, we all know that, uh, that Mimi may have something going on. When Rodolfo comes out, he tells, he tells Marcello that Mimi is a flirt, and Marcello says, I don't believe you, to which Rodolfo says, you're right. Mimi is seriously ill, and that's what's creating the problem. Mimi hears this. Rodolfo doesn't know that she has, has heard it, so it betrays something that she suspects but probably doesn't want to believe. And the trio that Puccini writes here for Marcello, Rodolfo, and Mimi allows each character to express the feeling and yet written in a musical way that it seems that they're all together and the emotion and feeling of the unity of these young people is going to have them survive this moment. So the, the third act ends with Rodolfo and Mimi deciding that they'll stay together. Mimi says, I'm going to leave you. Rodolfo said, well, I don't really want that to happen. Why don't we stay together until the spring? And Mimi agrees. At the, at the same time, Musetta is carrying on in the, uh, in the tavern, and she and Marcello get into a bit of a, uh, a cat fight. So the third act ends with Rodolfo and Mimi tenderly caressing one another as Marcello and Musetta well, take it to a different level. The fourth act takes place in late summer, early autumn. Um, Rodolfo and Mimi and Marcello and Mosetto have busted up. They're not together. And the opera opens, the scene opens with Marcello and Rodolfo in the same garret as we were in the first act. And they're bemoaning the fact that their women aren't there. They have the trinkets of their remnants of their love affairs, the bonnets that Rodolfo bought Mimi and a ribbon that Musetta left for uh, for Marcello. And as the other Bohemians come in and they're just goofing around, all of a sudden Musetta bursts in. And this is one of the most dramatic moments of any opera. And Puccini characterizes, just goes from a high comedy to instantaneous drama to create the crisis that Musetta is bringing in with Mimi. Il ferro, 
Placido Domingo said, Puccini is genius at using the power of his music to make love at first sight completely believable in act one. On the fourth act finale, I defy even the most cynical listener not to be touched by Mimi's reminiscing and by their friend's concern for her. La Boheme, a rare fusion of light and dark, as much buoyant and bright as foreboding and tragic.
Mimi saying to Rodolfo, I love you, you're all my life, before she expires. Enjoy the presentation, folks. Thank you so much.